All right, this is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Hey, Jamal. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We have a great show. We're actually going to go through our predictions for 2018. And because uh, we have a lot, we're going to be pr- making predictions about American and U.S. politics, about Middle East politics, what's going to be happening in the world. That's right. So if you are listening to us, actually, uh, right here on KPO 89.5 FM, you can uh, tweet us. You can tweet to Arab Talk or to Jamal Dejani, or if you are watching us on Facebook, Facebook Live. Live. Tell us what is your prediction for 2018. Or what you would like us to make a prediction about. Exactly, because we're going to go through the predictions. But first... uh, We have a lot of news, Jamal. A lot of news we're going to go uh, through. You know, actually, Palestine is in the... There's a lot of news, obviously, about what's been happening uh, politically in the U.S. in the last 24 hours. However, and actually, what, what in the big kind of brouhaha that's been going on, Palestine is one of the top items in the Twitterverse for uh, President Trump. And I think we need to start the ha- re-establish the hashtag, which is Free Ahed, or hashtag Free Ahed Tamimi. Ahed Tamimi is the 16-year-old young Palestinian girl who stood up to the full force and weight of the Israeli military. And of course, she had the audacity to stand up for herself with dignity with res- and with respect for herself. And she had the audacity to slap an Israeli soldier. And for that, Ahed and her mother have been arrested and are being charged to the full extent of the Israeli apartheid law, which is truly extraordinary when you look at all of the brutalities that the Israeli military has exacted on Palestinians over the decades and all the brutality uh, that the Israelis themselves get away with, the fact that this young 16-year-old girl who had the courage and the audacity to slap an Israeli soldier is being charged with a major you know, the f- felonious crime uh, under Israeli law. Well, you know, uh, for those who have been following her story, this is her second or coming to a third week that she has been in Israeli prison. Uh, just they keep renewing her, her sentence. Indefinite detention. In, so indefinitely. Okay. And yeah. that's why many uh, human rights organizations uh, basically, they, they they say they could keep her for for months on end, but uh, here is a, something that is very important because you you talked about the the double standards. Yes, you know, uh, number one, uh, I want to backtrack a little bit as far as her charge. I mean, this should be the least worry for usurpers, colonial settlers occupiers apartheid it is to be getting slapped by a 16 year old i mean i mean uh, you know you I, I can see how the some of the media outlets have uh, has been whitewashing the israeli the israeli occupation talking 
writing things like she assaulted. How do you assault? I mean, I mean, let me ask our American listeners here when we had the the Minutemen, right? Right. Did the Minutemen assault the Brits when they drove them out of Concord, Massachusetts, Did Boston? Uh, Lexington and all these things. I mean, people celebrate the Minutemen who actually used violence. They used uh, firepower. Absolutely. Here is a young woman, 16 year, years of age, and here is an intruder. This is someone who comes to your village. If you look at the soldier, he's carrying whatever, an M16 or something even more sophisticated than this. He's He has body armor. Fully armored up. And he has... You know, colleagues watching all over this little village here, and he got assaulted, assaulted between courts by a 16-year-old. But I want to talk about, about something really important because there's actually an interesting article today in the Israeli media, in the Haaretz, and it's a, it's a story about this notorious settler, this notorious actually female settler, uh, who is well known to both the Israeli occupy, uh, occupation and to Palestinians. Her name is Yifat Al-Kobi, Y-I-F-A-T, Al-Kobi. And she goes around from attacking Palestinians, throwing stones at them, throwing garbage, insulting them. So if you Google her name and or, or go to the Haaretz website today, you'll see a story about her that uh, she had confrontations with Israeli soldiers. Yes, exactly. Uh, in the West Bank, at least five times. And one of the times, not only did she slap an Israeli soldier, she also scratched his face. This is documented. There is a video for this. And every time, okay. Let me ask you. And a every yeah, time, what happened to her? Every time the Israeli soldiers they just held her for a couple of hours and drove her back to her settlement and They're released her. She hasn't spent a day in jail. Okay. So, so I mean, if we're going to compare apples with apples, and 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 talk about apartheid and two legal systems for two ethnicities, yes. that's the prime example for this. That's exactly right. And, and for our listeners who, who may not uh, appreciate the, the bifurcated two-system approach, is that Palestinians, when, when, when an illegal occupier like the Israeli military come to the West Bank and they arrest you, you're not put in the civilian Israeli judicial system. You are put in their military system of justice. And in their military system of justice, and I use that word justice very loosely, you are traditionally, as a Palestinian, put in this kind of black hole of administrative detention. Administrative detention, which we know and has been universally condemned by almost every country except the United States, almost every, you know, international legal NGO, basically you're held, you're held in jail, frequently you are tortured and put into solitary confinement, you're denied access to an attorney, you're denied access to your family, and here's the kicker, Jamal, mm -hmm. you don't even know your charges, and 
You don't even see, and you're not allowed to see the evidence against you. There are some Palestinians who have spent years, if not decades, in administrative detention, who have never known their charges, have not had access to an attorney, and who languish in these Israeli prisons. Ahed, a 16-year-old girl, is being is in this uh, legal black hole, the the apartheid black hole, because. Although she may have an attorney, an Israeli attorney, not a Palestinian attorney, but an Israeli attorney, she is not in, she's not being fully apprised of the evidence against her or her charges, and yet she still remains held in this uh, black hole. It's an outrageous system. Well, it is an outrageous system, and that's why this story is making news. It's all over the world. Uh, you know, free ahead. free ahead or free ahead Tamimi. This is the hashtag that people have been using on Twitter, everywhere else. Uh, there is a campaign to free her because, uh, again, this is a young, sixteen-year-old uh, Palestinian girl who basically had several confrontations, uh, you know, with usurpers occupiers intruders to her own to her own village in uh, to uh, her own land her, her cousin own one of her cousins was shot uh, in the head another cousin ha, ha, was uh, is actually now also in jail her mother is in jail and uh, you know the biggest basically crime that i see the way two things happening in the media one you know, this is a Me Too moment for the Palestinians, or this is something, you know, when, uh, you know, you, you what happened to, for example, all the uh, praise that went towards Malala in Afghanistan. Ahed is the Palestinian Malala. Absolutely. She is, uh, you know, people have been even comparing her to uh, uh, John Dark. There was an article. Uh, you know, I mean, she has become a symbol for their struggle and perseverance, but yet she doesn't receive the coverage that she should be receiving. And in the United States, and in the United States, and if any, we've witnessed uh, several news agencies who ha- have been trying to defame her. And recently, in the in the in Newsweek, by the way, I posted an article where they describe her as assaulting. I mean, they're shameless to say, you know, a 16-year-old assaulting a soldier and, uh, and, and uh, an occupier. I want to shift uh, gears here because we have so many things to talk about. Well, we sh- I, but I want to make a prediction. So well, well, I want to come back to the prediction. Because we have a prediction and then, about and then again, I want to repeat and I want to repeat our challenge to also our listeners. If you want to share in our predictions, either tweet us or uh, write on Facebook. Tell us what do you think is going to happen or what do you predict will happen in 2018 in 2018 uh, across the globe, but mostly in, in the Middle East and in the United States. So shifting gears and we'll come back to the predictions is again. Uh, Mr. Trump, back in the news, uh, you know, several, of course, things he has been doing, uh, you know, well, I don't want to I don't want to talk about about but, but he actually, has a, the largest nuclear button. No, he I has think the largest I, uh, naval button. No, <laughs> naval, he, I think he has he, the largest uh, belly uh, button. No, cheeseburger. All right. When you compare his cheeseburger to Kim Jong Un's cheeseburger, there's a he may, in fact, have a larger cheeseburger. But all kidding aside, 
What what Donald Trump has managed to do by tweeting alone is change the whole geopolitical dynamical relations about the question of Palestine. We know, for example, that he has um, declared that the United States will, in fact, change its embassy, move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. As if that wasn't enough, he announces on Twitter that now Jerusalem, as an issue for political engagement, discourse, and negotiation, is off the table. Whereby he's actually saying, Jamal, no longer will Jerusalem be an issue of negotiating between two parties. Jerusalem is a done deal. And third, and to take the, to rub salt into the wound of an already kind of outraged uh, Palestinian community in Palestine, he announces that he will stop aid to the Palestinian Authority, Jamal. That's a big deal. Exactly. So as you all recall, Mr. Trump promised to pursue the ultimate deal when he took office last year and asked his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, your favorite uh, citizen uh, of Israel and former lawyer Justin Greenblatt current ambassador to the United uh, from the United States to uh, to the government of which, Israel which I should mention that his daughter uh, a made uh, Aliyah yeah. uh, you know so she's an Israeli citizen yeah to work on a plan to end the decades old conflict between Israel and the Palestinians but on Tuesday night he went as usual in his series of tweets and and uh, from uh, first he started you know going after Pakistan he put a tweet that uh, that he wanted to uh, you cut, know, aid. cut the hundred of millions of dollars a year uh, that we give to Pakistan for actually mostly security and the military and then he put a, a tweet about the so-called peace treaty between the Palestinians and Israel. And he says, and I'm here uh, quoting from his tweet, we have taken Jerusalem, the toughest part of the negotiation, off the table, but Israel for that would have had to pay more. But with the Palestinians no longer willing to talk peace, why should we make any of these massive future payments to them? So, so basically, in fact, he is black, Mailing, blackmailing the Palestinians. the Palestinians for not being succumbing, succumbing or not uh, willing to go back to the, the negotiating, the so-called negotiation table that they've been sitting around for the past 24 years and getting zero. Right. Nothing. Well, actually less than zero. Well, uh, while Israel takes more land, takes more land, imprisons more Palestinians. So now he's saying to them, you either go back do the same like you've been doing for the past 24 years. Otherwise, we're going to cut financial okay. aid I to have Palestine. An I have an announcement to Abu Mazen. Abu Mazen, if you're listening, and I know you listen to Arab talk, please um, do not beg for this money. Reject the money coming from the United States. This is an awesome opportunity to release yourself from the shackles of this imperial stranglehold that the United States has had around the neck of the Palestinian Authority for decades. It's time. I mean, they, Jamal, have manipulated Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, not Palestinians, but have manipulated the PA, have totally 
destroyed any sense of a just solution here, have done everything possible to destroy the, the, the kind of will of the Palestinian people, which they haven't done, through trying to manipulate and buy off. And here's the ultimate blackmail. If you don't listen to me, if you don't become a good subject, if you don't accept being occupied, we're going to take the money away. I, I have breaking news for Donald Trump now. The Palestinians will never accept that. And that's why we're asking Abu Mazen, because he listens to Arab talk, Jamal, let it go. Give the money back. And the other thing I want to add, Jerusalem is not for sale. <laughs> and that's yes. basically, and basically yes. this is what Donald Trump is saying. That's right. But let's take a look at this financial aid, American financial aid that the Palestinians have been receiving. And you can break it, break it down into two or three categories. Right. Okay. And I guarantee you one of the categories and um, this is my, one of the predictions oh, which is will your come, prediction. that Donald Trump will not touch. But you have, in 2016, $370 million went to UNRWA, which is an agency that provides assistance to the 5 million-plus Palestinian refugees across the Middle East, not only in Palestine, Palestine but everywhere. But everywhere. This is something that the refugees did not parachute, as Arafat used to say, did not parachute out of nowhere. They became refugees because of the United States That's right. basically pushing for the creation of Israel and the same tactics that they've used recently in, at the United Nations, the twisting arms for countries like Micronesia and I don't know what, to vote for the division uh, of, of Palestine. So this is a global problem. It's the longest problem now in modern history when it comes to refugees. That's right. It's the yeah, longest refugee it's, it's, problem. It's the longest refugees problem. And then he, he this, is, this has been created. So $370 million, basically, he's going to be penalizing those who have suffered since 1948, their children, their grandchildren, they suffered the humiliation, they lost their homes, they've been living in refugee camps, he wants to suffer, he wants to punish these. The other category, which is about $260 million in bilateral aid that the United States provides, only it's really a relatively small amount goes directly to the Palestinian Authority. Much of it instead goes to, towards projects administered by the United States Agency for International Development, otherwise known as USAID. So USAID administers these projects, and these projects, uh, they basically uh, involve uh, humanitarian assistance, economic development, uh, democratic, de democratic reform, improving water access and other infrastructure, healthcare, education, vocational training. It goes, many of these goes to NGOs, and several of these NGOs are, are United States-based NGOs, NGOs right. so the right. money comes back to some of the U.S., uh, you know, non-profit organizations operating in Palestine. That's right. And last but not least. And most importantly. And most importantly, <laughs> and this is the figure that I'm willing to bet Donald Trump himself he won't touch. This is our first prediction. I, 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 I challenge the Congress to actually cut this, this, this figure, and I know that they will not touch. You know why? Because their boss, 
their boss, Benjamin Netanyahu, will not approve this. That's right. And this is the security, the money that goes to the Palestinian Authority for training, arming the security services. And by the way, most of the training happens in Jericho. That's right. And these are the Palestinian Authority security f- uh, forces. What do you use them for? Uh, do you use them? Do you use them to, to protect, protect Palestinians no. against uh, Israeli settlers? No. Do you use them to to defend incursions by the Israeli occupation army no. in Gaza no. or in Ramallah no. or in Nablus? They're not used. What for do that. you use them for? Well, they're used to collaborate, and I'm using that word deliberately, Jamal, to collaborate with the Israeli military and the Israeli uh, security apparatus to spy on, to collude with, and to protect the strategic interests or the security interests, if you will, of the Israelis. They are an extension of the Israeli security and military apparatus. So what the Israelis have done, as many occupiers have done, They've used local, uh, local population, in this case, Palestinian uh, security uh, infrastructure, to basically do the dirty work of the Israelis when the Israelis are not there. And how much are they spending on that? How many hundreds of millions of dollars is that, Jamal? That's about $180 million to $200 million so here's annually. So here's our first prediction. Which, by the way, also they get on top of that some also aid from the Canadians, uh, from other European right. countries. So it's not by itself, but a big chunk goes towards the security apparatus to protect really the settlers. It's to protect the Israelis, Jamal. To protect the Israelis. It's, inte- it's to gather intelligence. It's to develop collaborators. It's to protect the settlers. And, you know, our prediction is, even though I would say to Abu Mazen, give that money back, we don't need that money. Our first prediction, which Jamal and I are both on the same page on, that money will not be cut. The money that the U.S. government pays to train Palestinian security officials to do the dirty work of the Israeli security operatives, that money, actually, not only will it not be decreased or taken away, Jamal, there's a very good chance that they're going to increase that budget. Well, that's why I said I challenge Mr. Trump, I challenge the U.S. Congress to cut that package of aid towards security in the West Bank. Because here's the... I challenge them to cut that. I don't want to pay a penny towards this from from my tax money. But I guarantee you they won't do this. Well, well, here's the breaking news. This is going to kind of lead in later on to our predictions, Jamal. But if the Trump policy on Palestine continues along the path that it will, basically what Trump is doing, Jamal, is creating this political and economic vacuum throughout the world such that other countries and other powerful collectives of countries uh, are coming together to fill that vacuum. By cutting uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, by uh, the United States getting out of that, China is dancing in the streets because they've formed their own collective negotiating and trading block that completely leaves the United States out. It was a catastrophically negative mood. If, (coughs) excuse me, if the United States continues to isolate Palestine, to pull out of the Arab world, to pull out of the Middle East in this way, that vacuum, what do you think will fill that vacuum, Jamal? 
What do you think? Who will step in to fill the economic, political void that is created by the United States if they do this? Well, I think, uh, number one, if you, if you really cut aid towards the security aspect, the Palestinian Authority will collapse that whole premise, yes. actually. And, uh, and to add to this, if you listen to the last de- declaration by the Likud, the Likud just recently, this is the ruling uh, party in Israel, this is Benjamin Netanyahu's party, they want to annex... The settlements. The settlements. And they basically want to annex big, more Palestinian land. Big, big chunks of the West Bank. And of course, they will not annex... Or they will annex the land, but they will not annex the people, meaning they will not give Israeli citizenship no. to those living no, in they just and, and, take and, the land. And, and again in- increase that whole uh, existence of apartheid that is already there. But basically, they are admitting they're saying we want to, you know, we want to annex the settlements, but we are not going to give citizenship to Palestinians living on on these land. You are listening to Arab talk. In San Francisco on KPOO 89.5 FM, and of course, uh, you are uh, listening to us on Facebook. We're going to continue our broadcast. We're not going to take a we're not going to take a break just because we have a live broadcast also on on Facebook live. Right. And I want to go uh, again to but our can, predictions. Can, wait, wait, wait. Can we just say a little bit more about this because the vacuum that's going to be created? I mean, the United States keeps making this prob- this mistake, Jamal. They go into Iraq, they break it, they create a vacuum for even worse kind of developments of political and economic forces taking over in Iraq. They did the same thing in Afghanistan. They've done the same thing so many times, Jamal, where they've created the conditions where they've destabilized the regions of the Arab world and the Middle East and created catastrophic unintended consequences. So part of my prediction is that should the United States continue along this path of, you know, uh, creating these these vacuums, these opportunities for other forces to, to, to kind of step in, you very well will have unintended consequences, which will not be in the best interest of the United States. That's going to be one of my predictions. All right. So to our listeners, here is the challenge, and we'll talk about this. What are your predictions for 2018? If you have a prediction, tweet it to us uh, or uh, send it to us uh, on, on Facebook Live. You could write down your prediction. And I will start by some of the predictions. So okay. I'll post, uh, I'll maybe I'll ask you about them, just so you could ask me. But for example... In Palestine, I actually think that this is the final year for Mahmoud Abbas I agree. and Abu Mazen I agree. in Palestine. I, what I, do you, yeah. I, I, I think uh, that's exact, exactly right. 2018 will be Abu Mazen's last year. What we're going to see as a result of that is a big power struggle between the various political factions. Unfortunately, uh, we're beginning to see elements of that in Gaza uh, where there was supposed to be a transition to the PA that's not happening as, as was predicted, as was hoped rather. And now that our prediction is that Abu Mazen will not make it through 2018, there will be a tremendous factional uh, struggle among Palestinian political factions. And unfortunately, 
what that will mean is that uh, probably things will get much worse for Palestinians in 2018. Well, definitely. I mean, uh, I can see, uh, I don't see a recovery from what is uh, been going on from the declaration of Jerusalem as the capital of uh, Israel, uh, also from all the... Uh, Basically, every single one from from the child to the adult knows that all the whole Oslo agreement has collapsed. It has collapsed. And he's the architect of this Oslo agreement. Yes. And and you could see the writing on the wall. Uh, and sadly, you know, I mean, this is uh, the da- dangerous part. We don't know what's in store as far as the replacement. And you can see a lot of people jockeying. For power, well, and there's the no United, obvious the United successor. States has, well, the United States has already selected some of its, uh, uh, its yeah, successors, Dahlan and is so the successor. hopefully the Palestinian people will have the ability to take a stand and and select or elect their own leader versus having someone appointed uh, by the CIA or by the Israeli Mossad. Well, the Israeli, the Israelis, and the Americans want uh, Dahlan. Well, no, they want that. There is also Farage, who is the head of security. Right, right. And, and, and others. So, so my prediction, a major change will happen on the ground. I agree. And another prediction. What do you think about Sisi? Well, that's very interesting. I, I am of the opinion that Sisi will also not survive 2018. I'm of the opinion that the economic situation right now in Egypt is so terrible and that Sisi has double-crossed so many people in the Arab world, has hitched his wagon and betrayed so many different of his uh, of the people who've been giving him large sums of money. I'm not sure that Sisi will make it 2018 either. I disagree with you on this one. Okay. I think, you know, of course, uh, they're having another election. I think he's going to get elected. Uh, oh, I think he'll get elected. He'll I get just don't elected. think he'll make it. No, no, I think I think he will. Uh, basically, and sadly, there are no other options in Egypt uh, on the horizon. And the military is in full control. And you don't have any uh, rival. Well, this is excellent. We have our first disagreement. And this no, is no, I, I think, I think, you know, in, in a way, things will continue as is. But what about the in, economic in, conditions in, for well, Egypt? Well, the economic right? e- conditions. I mean, Egypt has dug itself in a deeper hole to be dependent on financial aid, dependent on the on the United States, dependent Saudi on, on Saudi Arabia. So, so this will not. This will not change. Okay, I have, a, I have a prediction that I want to ask you about. What is your prediction for Mohammed bin Salman and the coup that is unraveling or taking place in Saudi Arabia right now? Does the crown prince consolidate power in 2018? Or, in fact, is there a major coup against him? Well, this is actually a tough one. It's, it sounds very easy. My prediction that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, will become the king. I think the current king, his dad, is on his way out. I mean, this is the coup. He's, he's cons- he is consolidating his power to take over. So he probably will be, before the end of the year, he will become uh, king. But there is so much... 
discontent and, and un unrest against basically the House of Saud. I don't think just about Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, you know, in fact, all the different, all, all what he had done uh, recently was to consolidate, consolidate his power and, and eliminate the opposition. Um, and this is internal opposition. Right. He, so he, the question is not so he, much will he, because I think you're right, there's a good chance he'll become king in 2018. My question to you is does he make it till the end of 2018 because he has alienated over 200 of the most powerful and the richest of the royal family right now. He's making dramatic changes, social changes, which you know are very difficult to make in a short period of time. So the question is, does he make it till the end of 2018? He will. Uh, eventually, and, and hopefully sooner than later, the House of Saud will collapse like a deck of cards. But it's not going to happen this year. And, you know, at the, end of, at the end of the day, it's not, the issue is not about Mohammed bin Salman or this prince or that prince. It's part of the, part and parcel of this whole monarchy, monarchy. Uh, that controls, you know, the country, uh, uh, you know, the Arabian Peninsula. But for now, he will consolidate power. He will become the king. He will, you know... Saudi Arabia, if you look at it in the past past few years under the guise of the war on terror, they've been eliminating opposition outside the royal family. Right. So, you know, you always had in the news this person got killed or they had this. It's basically eliminating anyone who spoke against the royal family until they found out that they were, they were th themselves split amongst each other. That's right. So now... He is eliminating basically his cousins. He's eliminating his cousins. Right. And who, consolidating who power. Okay, so this may be another area where you and I have a small disagreement. I actually think that in 2018 that the House of Saud will face not only its most difficult challenges, but in fact there is a very strong likelihood that there will be a major collapse of some aspects of the royal family in 2018. Here's why. 2018, the price of oil is going to drop dramatically. Uh, so I think that the financial kind of infrastructure of the House of Saud is, is going to become more fragile. By the way, 2018, what country will become the number one oil-producing country in the world? United States. That's what's going to happen this year. I know that's kind of maybe a surprise to people. Well, they have also the reserve. And the reserve. I just think that the economic foundation of the House of Saud is going to be fragile. Second, the problem with Yemen, Jamal, we, in the last month, two missiles have been fired from Yemen into Riyadh. Mm -hmm. And so I think 2018, you're going to see much more problematic, difficult, both external and internal forces putting pressure on the monarchy. I don't see it as a good year for the House of Saud. It may, yeah, I think it, it, we will see some decline, but again, the prediction is that uh, Mohammed bin Salman will, will be king and he will be in power. Okay, let's move on to the United States yes. midterm elections in 2018. 
Well, this one I think is an easy one uh, in some sense. I have two predictions. I believe that in terms of the House of Representatives that we will see a flip from uh, Republican-dominated control to Democrat-controlled uh, legislature. Nancy Pelosi will be the new Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan will not run for re-election in 2018. He will leave and start preparing for a presidential bid. So in the Senate, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think my prediction is that it'll be 50-50, that it'll become evenly split. Right now it's 51 to 49. I think uh, the most we can hope for, unfortunately, when you look at the map, is 50-50. I agree with you. Uh, I expect the Democrats uh, to make gains in both the House and the Senate and to take control of at least one of them. Okay. Okay, so, so that's for sure, you know, maybe both, but at least one, they will take control of one. Uh, and uh, even as they struggle to produce a convincing candidate to take on Trump in the 2020 presidential elections, and that's why I keep telling all the Democrats around, keep your eye on the ball. I think, you know, they feel by just attacking Donald Trump justifiably and work. everything else he has been doing, all the crazy announcement and threatening North Korea and his scandals and investigations, this is not enough. You're right. This is not enough to defeat okay. because if the economy stays strong, strong, which it is, People are making millions, and the millionaires and the billionaires are making billions in the stock market. Remember, Americans vote with their wallets. Yeah, but the problem is, Jamal, that most of the people that are benefiting from the stock market, uh, it's less than 10% of Americans. And the people who voted for Donald Trump are not the people who have massive wealth in the stock market. Those individuals are still being left yeah, behind. Yeah, but they have the fantasy. Yeah. I know all these people, yes, the billionaires voted for him and the millionaires and wherever, those who are going to benefit from his tax, uh, the new tax plan. But many of those people who voted for him, and, and many of them are white supremacists, and many of them are working class. And they're not in the stock market. And they're not in the stock market. They have this fantasy to become millionaires and Okay, I have a question. Who do you think from the Democrats will announce a bid for the presidency? I have two. Okay, because I have a few. One is our senator right here in California. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Because it's not Diane Feinstein. No, it's not. <laughs> and... Biden, the former well, vice that's president. That, that's interesting. I think they're both play, positioning themselves for, for a bid. There'll be others, but I see them actually as the strongest candidates so far. Okay. That's exactly my prediction that it'll be Biden, but also Kamala Harris, vice president, with two other people being thrown into the mix. Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, and Catherine Gillibrand, the senator from New York. So I think, in my mind, in terms of the tea leaves, I think that uh, those four will come out in some capacity in 2018 
and uh, kind of throw down the gauntlet for 2020. It all depends, though, Jamal, on how the midterm elections go. Okay, next prediction. Well, uh, Russia, Putin. Again, you have another election, and he's going to win. There's, there's few things that I'm less... <laughs> there are few things that I'm more certain about other than... Vladimir Putin will become the next president of Russia. He will win in a landslide. He will win in a landslide. There's, I have no doubt about his that. His influence will increase. It even, has already even, increased even more on on the global level. But that's not the question. The question is, do you have any predictions about what is going to happen with the Russian investigation? The, 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 the kind of Mueller investigation in relation to the Trumps. Will anything big happen in 2018? Yeah, I think there'll be some indictments. We're moving towards this. They're going to drag it on. I don't expect it to be, to, to be resolved in 2018. I, I have a I big announcement. Okay. Jared Kushner is going to be indicted in 2018. I think I agree with you. On, on this one, he'll be in, in, indicted. Uh, they'll fight it. They'll fight it. I actually have another prediction. I think he might be pushed out of the White House. Doesn't he and, matter. He's still going to get indicted. You know, they'll try to minimize his role and keep him at bay from from the White House and hopefully from Palestine. No, that's uh, that's my prediction that Jared Kushner will be indicted and be forced into this horrible position which you know he obviously deserves to either to either be a uh, you know to to either you know agree to be a witness and testify against his uh, father-in-law or take the hit for the father-in-law. Both choices are not good. Either he goes to jail for the father-in-law or he sings for his freedom. Neither one is a good choice. He might sing for his freedom. Mm -hmm. The idea, though, is that he might get a pardon from his father-in-law. But what I predict is that some of the indictment against Jared Kushner are going to be state charges of money laundering. Uh-huh. You're right. Actually, Bannon said this. Oh, okay. He said that it will all boil down to money laundering. I believe that Jared Kushner has been laundering money, Russian money, and uh, that is a state charge. And the way pardons work is that presidents can only pardon people under the federal system. So if, if Kushner is charged and indicted under the state of New York, he cannot be pardoned for state crimes. So, Jared, I have bad news for you, man. 2018, in my opinion, is not going to be a good year for you. I agree. I agree with you on, on this one. Now, on the, uh, we, we talked about individuals and actions, but let's talk a little bit about uh, on the global level. Like, what do we, what do we see as far as, uh, you know, the entire region, like the Middle East? Well, I think uh, this is going to be a very problematic year in the Middle East and the Arab world uh, and the Arab world in the Middle East, Jamal, this is going to be a very difficult year. The United States has announced that they, you know, have defeated ISIS in Syria. I believe that is a premature, very premature kind of announcement because unfortunately what has happened to those ISIS fighters that they've kind of gone underground and are going to resurface somewhere else in the world. So here is something related to this we actually didn't name. 
is Bashar al-Assad. What's your prediction on him staying in power? Bashar al-Assad will be in power in 2018. You, you notice that we don't hear anything about him. That's why he's... <laughs> Trump doesn't condemn him. Absolutely. You know, he's focusing on North Korea and other, other things and way, the Palestinians. But Bashar al-Assad has a better chance of being president than Jared Kushner has of not being indicted. <laughs> you probably... So Bashar al-Assad will remain president However, Lebanon becomes more destabilized, I believe. The, the problem of ISIS becomes a much bigger problem because the United States committed the same problem. They, they have just forced these ISIS, these ISIS individuals to go underground. They're going to resurface somewhere else. We don't know if that's Africa. We don't know if that's Yemen. We don't know if it's other parts of the Middle East. It could be the Sinai. could be Egypt. could be who knows where. But 2018 is going to be a very difficult, bad year politically and economically for the Arab world. That's my prediction. So, guys, I see some people who have tweeted, and we've actually addressed several of their, their yeah. tweets and predictions. But I'm looking here, I'm seeing some questions. Here is a question from Malcolm Rigsby. Uh, why is the United States and Israel so pleased at the social and political unrest in Iran? Consider 1950s Iran, which is actually true. Uh, it's a great question, Malcolm. Thank you so much. The reason that the United States and the Israelis are so excited about this is that it, it fulfills their deluded fantasy that somehow, and again, it's the same problematic element, that the, that, that the monarchy in Iran and the leftovers of the monarchy in Iran and the and the the Shah of Iran's son, who still lives in D.C. by the way, and some of his descendants, they have this delusional idea that the that 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 the ruling apparatus of Iran right now, which is you know held by the supreme leader Khamenei, will somehow be brought to his knees, and that the monarchy will come back. They're they're actually thinking that the Iranian reverse revolution of 1953 will happen again. And unfortunately, this is a completely delusional idea to think that the, the supreme leader and the religious kind of uh, power infrastructure in Iran is going to go anywhere, even with these protests that are happening in the streets. It's part of a deluded fantasy. By the way, my prediction, Jamal, mm -hmm. it's not a prediction, it's a belief that the Israelis have been using social media to influence the unrest in Iran. Actually, this is what uh, Iran uh, said, that both uh, Israel and the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, had something to do with the unrest. I mean, you know, let's, uh, you know, I mean, we know uh, this is uh, an authoritarian regime at the hey, end of the day. But listen, the Iranians have every right to protest. They have plenty of reasons absolutely, to protest. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But That's not the point. But the point is uh, you have all different news media outlets trying to make more of it, including exaggerating the numbers of That's right. people in, in the streets. And the way I look at it, I mean, here is, here is, here is the joke here, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, and it's really funny. It's a funny joke. You see all these news, news agencies, mostly, you know, Western news agencies who, that are eagerly covering demonstrations in Iran. And they don't have 
crews on the ground. I know that for sure. Trust me. I know who are these agencies. So they're relying on on uh, tweets and and, and, and opposition and and the and reports from the PKK, which is a considered actually international terrorist organization. Uh, you know, and others, other groups, and uh, from from Turkey and That's I don't know Kurdistan. where, and Kurdistan and others that are feeding them with, but they don't have. I know for sure they don't have crews on the ground. They don't have cameras on the ground. And and so these are these ones are so eager to cover the demonstrations, right, uh, with no crews, and and hardly any of them cover the daily. Palestinian demonstrations against Israeli apartheid. Absolutely. And all of them have news bureaus right in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Well, I think that's a really good point. And Malcolm, the the United States uh, has a kind of, and the Israelis have this delusional idea. And don't forget the United States, Israel, and now Saudi Arabia have joined in this unholy alliance to go after Iran. Iran, which has the most sta- is the most probably stable country in the entire region. If that if Iran were to be destabilized, it would have catastrophic, catastrophic uh, implications for the world. Now, what we're saying is we're not saying that the uh, people of Iran should not have a right to protest. Absolutely, they do. They should have a right to more economic benefits. They were promised economic benefits as a result of the nuclear deal that was cut with the United States. And unfortunately, that hasn't come to fruition. But that is an Iranian problem, man. And to think that the United States, the Saudis, and the Israelis can intervene in the internal affairs of the Iranian government is really kind of crazy. And uh, another funny joke is also the Saudi-controlled media. Which right. criticizing, which criticizes demonstrations. I mean, the uh, I mean, or the reaction of the Iranian government against the demonstrators. Isn't that outrageous? When they don't allow a single demonstrator in Saudi Ever. Arabia. No, you can't. Demonstrate. You can't demonstrate in Saudi Arabia. And here they are criticizing Iran. So this is the hypocrisy. We see it, the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the medieval kingdom, the hypocrisy of the Israeli apartheid, and the hypocrisy of uh, uh, Donald Trump's. Uh, uh, foreign policy. Well, listen, we're, we, we're signing off here in a minute, Jamal. I want our listeners, we're going to kind of continue with this into next week when we do the show. If you have other predictions or you want us to make other predictions, send us your comments to ArabTalk at KPOO.com. You could send us comments at ArabTalk on Twitter, or you could go to Jamal Dejani 2 slash ArabTalk, which you can... Kind of post whatever you want. Yeah, actually, you can watch us every week uh, right here uh, on Twitter on my site, Jamal Dajani, too, on Facebook. Also, listen to us in the Bay Area on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We'll talk to you next week and Happy New Year.